Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Good. Um, as Dan just said, we are going to be having Family Worship Sunday next week, uh, which means that the kids are going to be in here during that time. And if you've been following along in our sermon series, some of you may be asking yourselves the question, is the sermon going to be kid-friendly? Um, I'm not sure yet. I haven't written it. We'll see. I'm hoping so. But uh, yeah, we have been in a sermon series going through uh, Jesus' most famous, famous sermon uh, found in chapters in... Oh, okay, let's start over, right? Ugh. We are going through Jesus' most famous sermon uh, found in, cha in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, famously called the Sermon on the Mountain. We are today in Matthew chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to there. And in this series, what, like, we are examining um, Jesus' words to this crowd of people who are up on this mountainside with him, and he is explaining to them uh, sort of what life in the kingdom of God is meant to look like. He's, he's drawing from the teachings of the Bible of their day, which we called the Old Testament, but it was the, what they called the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he's showing how the laws and the words of the Old Testament... They were good, they're instructive, they're worth basing your whole life around, but the interpretation of his time was incomplete. So Jesus spends this sermon reinterpreting the words of the Old Testament to point people forward to what life in his kingdom is meant to look like, what the good life is, the life that all of us were meant to experience, a life of submission to God's best for you and I. And so during these three chapters, Jesus is sharing a, a vision, He's sharing a vision for this good life. But later in the Gospels, Jesus simplifies it down even further, giving us a four-sentence summary of what the good life is. And here is how Jesus describes it. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is spending three very, very packed chapters trying to condense the law and the prophets into sort of this kingdom vision. And then later in Matthew 22, he condenses it further. He says, Here's the, here is what the kingdom of God is all about. Love God with everything you have and love others as yourself. Uh, Martin Buber was an Austrian Jewish philosopher in the early 20th century, and he has this famous work, uh, a book called I and Thou. Has anybody read it? Wow! That's like, I, I thought Justin in the balcony was going to be the only one. Um, so this is good. good. Good work, everybody. Philosophers in the room. And so in this book, I and Thou, he writes that humans interact with each other, with the world, with nature, um, and even with God in two different ways. And the first is what he calls the I-it. Now, the I-it is a predominantly objectifying way of seeing another person, addressing or treating other people in the same way that you would treat an object. 
It's a way of seeing other people as merely like an accessory to your life. As you are working for your own sort of self-actualization or your own pleasure, your own fulfillment, and you see other people as something to manipulate so that you can achieve or receive or experience whatever it is that you think will make you most happy. And while on the surface, that way of thinking sounds like something that only a sociopath would do, right? Um, the, what, what he shows us is that uh, for most of us, we can fall into this trap, this way of, of um, relating to other people, even in our most cherished relationships. It's a very human thing to experience the I-it. We can do it in our marriages with our spouse, where we heap on their shoulders this expectation that they are somehow supposed to fulfill all of your needs in themselves, they need to fulfill your need for companionship. They need to be the perfect coworker in your home with all of the house responsibilities that you have to fulfill. They need to be a perfect parent alongside you. They need to be your confidant and your best friend. They need to be your intellectual equal so that you can spar back and forth sort of uh, intellectually. And they need to be sexually alluring. They got to stay fit and looking good for a long time and a hundred other things. And when they cease to be all of these things that we have heaped on them, then we feel like, gosh, the marriage just isn't working anymore. We can fall into this trap in our parenting. You know, we love these little kiddos, but, you know, we, we really just want them to behave and respect you and to love and give you attention, but only when you want that love and attention. And otherwise, I've got things to do. Please leave me alone for a few minutes I'm in the bathroom, the door is locked, stop knocking on it. Um, or you can, you can eye it your children sort of by, by putting on them the responsibility of being successful in all of the things that reflect well on you, whether it's school or sports or music or a hundred other activities, so that you can feel fulfilled as a parent through the, your child's success. You can do this in friendships. You can do this in work relationships. Buber even says that you can relate to God in the I it where God is merely a philosophy meant to bring you happiness when you're feeling a little bit down, or he is a cosmic vending machine, uh, you know, doling out blessings as long as you say the right prayer. This is what the I-it is. And in our world of technology and speed and everything else, our culture is sort of forcing us into this constant way of thinking where we're relating to the world and to each other in this I-it way. We relate to the places that we live like this. We no longer feel like we belong to a community, but rather uh, we, we move to a community so that we can live there and we can feel good about all the amenities that it offers. We can approach church this way, where church is just a place where I go to get my, my needs met, my itches scratched, and if it's not working for me, then I'll bounce and move on to the other thing. That's the I-it. It's treating others as objects in your life, even unintentionally. But Buber says that there is another way of, of relating to the world, and he calls that the I and thou. And the I-thou is a way of recognizing another person's humanity with our full humanity. The I-thou is being completely present to another human being. It's a way of reciprocity and generosity and attention. Buber actually says that experiencing the I-thou is one of the most precious parts of the human birthright. And experiencing the I-thou in, in human relationships, it flows most importantly from, our, from experiencing it in our relationship with God, who Buber calls the eternal thou. How many of you are still with me? How many of you are still chuckling at the sound of the name Buber? 
okay? And so this, thank you for hanging with me through a little bit of philosophy talk. Now, this is a long philosophical way of pointing us back to the very simple and profound words of Jesus. The heart of everything comes back to these two commands. Loving God, approaching God as the thou, as the eternal thou, loving him completely with our attention and our focus and our heart and our whole being, and relating to each other, loving each other with our whole being, attentive to one another, caring for a life of reciprocity to other people. People, learning to live in the I and thou space in every relationship. And, and Jesus says that when you learn how to do that, you will find that every command in the Old Testament, every command even right here in the Sermon on the Mount is fulfilled because you're fulfilling the two things that are most important, loving God and loving people. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is drawing us out of the legalistic rules for how to exist in community, how to behave, and he's instead revealing the heart that is behind the laws. And so when he talks about murder, he's exposing the heart of anger that belittles and objectifies other people. When he talks about adultery and lust, he's revealing the way that we objectify the person that we lust after in seeking our own fulfillment. We are using another person. We are treating them as the it. The Sermon on the Mount is drawing us back over and over again to the I and thou relationships, which finally brings us to today's text. Last week, we talked about lust and adultery. That was a doozy. <laughs> and so today, we are moving on to talk about what it means to live a life of fidelity and integrity. If you have your Bible open, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. Jesus says, It has been said... That anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And so we're unpacking the Sermon on the Mount week by week. And because we're sort of taking it in chunks, it's really easy for us to sort of lose track of the flow of thought between each of the subjects. But Jesus is building off of what he just talked about in the previous verses about lust, <coughs> excuse me, lust and adultery. And, um, and what he is saying is this, that the objectification of the other and chasing our desire over fidelity to your spouse, it leads to essentially an easy divorce culture. And this was true in Jesus' day just as much as it is true in our day. And so in verse 31, Jesus is actually pointing us back to Deuteronomy, where Moses commanded God's people this. He says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, this is like a pretty big hypothetical, right? Or if he dies, 
Then, he, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Pretty straightforward, right? Got it? And so, unfortunately, this morning, we do not have time to do a big, deep dive into all that the Bible has to say about divorce. But suffice it to say, it's complicated. Like, divorce is not an easy, clear, cut-and-dry, universal, here's the rules and go with it. Here in Deuteronomy and in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, we are not learning a comprehensive view of God's best for marriage or for divorce. Jesus isn't saying that divorce is good only under certain circumstances and here are the conditions where you can do it. He's actually just simply recognizing the aftermath which comes through the tragedy of divorce. And that's what divorce is. It is a tragedy. And in both of these passages, Moses and Jesus are specifically guarding against the oppression of women in a divorce culture. If a woman is given a certificate of divorce, and in the law, in the Old Testament, only a man was allowed to give a woman a certificate of divorce. A woman could not divorce her husband. Only a husband could divorce his wife then the law says that she must be allowed to remarry because if she isn't, she would have no, stru- so, no support structure left to take care of her. She would be kicked out of her husband's house and she would end up on the street, likely in prostitution. So there needed to be a provision for how she would be able to go about remarrying. Now in Jesus' day, there was this raging debate happening about this particular phrase in Deuteronomy 24, where it says, if he finds something indecent about her. That, that's the grounds of divorce that Deuteronomy 24 gives you. If the husband finds something indecent about his wife. And so throughout most of history before Jesus arrives on the scene, the consensus was that this phrase, something indecent, refers only to one thing, and that was adultery. But then in the, the years leading up to Jesus' ministry, about the, the generation right before Jesus, there was this debate about whether the phrase something indecent could be broadened out. Maybe it's not just, maybe it's not just adultery. Like what if there were other things about your wife that you found displeasing? Would that be okay to divorce her? And so there was this famous rabbi, Hillel, who advocated what he called for, what he called any reason divorce, meaning that a man could divorce his wife for any reason he wanted to at all. He thought she was a bad mom, divorce. He thought that, you know, she no longer looked as beautiful as she did when she was younger, divorce. I'll go find somebody younger. Uh, You know, didn't like her cooking, divorce. You undercook the fish, divorce. You overcook the chicken, divorce. Undercook, Undercook, overcook. So strangely, this view... Surprisingly, it became really popular among the guys in Israel during Jesus's, uh, during Jesus's day. And men began literally throwing their wives out of their home. And Jesus is confronting this. He's going to war with this practice. And this is what Jesus says. He says, but, if, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so Jesus is aware of this debate that is happening and the popularity of Hillel's take in Deuteronomy 24. 
And in this moment, he is clarifying sort of once and for all what is meant by this phrase, something indecent. He is saying it is adultery. That is what the law means. But then Jesus uses this interesting phrase. He says he makes her the victim of adultery. What does that mean? When you divorce your wife for any reason, whether, you know, simple reasons today, you fell out of love, you're better as friends, you fight too much, the kids moved out of the house and you realize that you don't really have anything in common anymore, Jesus is actually calling that, the act of divorce in that situation, he's calling that adultery. He's saying you are breaking your marital vows to her. And she is now a victim of your lack of fidelity, of faithfulness to your commitment. The flow of thought from Jesus' words on lust to his words here on adultery is this, that the objectification of women eventually leads to the oppression of women. These two are connected. Now, if we take Jesus' words at face value, at a face value reading of this text, it is a brutal way of looking at the future for anyone who is divorced, right? Like, that's, these are tough, tough words. The surface-level reading of Jesus is that the only type of divorce that is permissible biblically is that, when, is, is that you can only do it when you are cheated on, and even then, neither party should ever be allowed to get remarried. Whew. That's like, that's what this text says, right? That's what we read in just these words right here. That's intense. And when I look across this room, I see that there are, I, I see many people here who have experienced the pain of divorce. Personally, in your own life, you know, your marriage didn't work out. You ended up being divorced. Or you're the children of divorce. Your family was split up by it. You were divorced by someone else. You were deserted and didn't have any choice in the matter. You were the one who committed the sin of divorce. There's, there's a, a great sweeping scope right here in this room. There are divorced people who have been battered by this kind of surface level reading and interpretation of this text. And the truth is that for every person, things are complicated, right? Life is not that simple and cut and dry. Like if you look at this text, Jesus says nothing here about desertion. He says nothing about what it means, like how you need to think about remarriage if your spouse was to abandon you. Jesus says nothing here about abuse, Abuse, me mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, all of these things that are horrifying prisons to live in in your own marriages. And so this is not a comprehensive teaching on when it's okay or not okay to get a divorce. But I don't think that recognizing that automatically gets us off the hook. This is complicated. It means that this is complex. And I think that it needs to be approached with the seriousness of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't say, the law is complicated, therefore don't worry about it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount over and over again says, the law doesn't quite get to the heart, and that's what I'm most interested in. We need to approach this with the seriousness of the words of the Sermon on the Mount, and we need to approach this with the compassion that Jesus lived day to day the compassion that he extended 
to tax collectors and prostitutes, that he extended to those who were considered far away outsiders from God, the compassion that he extended even to a thief who died on the cross right next to him. We should pause when we read the words of Jesus. And so while this passage lacks a certain amount of nuance, Jesus is confronting the very easy divorce culture in his days, and his words still ring true in ours today. These are not easy. And so for followers of Jesus, when marriage is difficult or even undesirable, divorce is not on the table as our way out. We are called to honor the covenant that we have made before family, before friends, and before God himself to another person, pledging our lives till death do us part to another person. We are called to be people who honor our commitments even when it is sacrificial. If you have divorce in your past, or even for some people in the room, the truth is divorce might be in your present. It might be something that you are walking into presently. And, and we hope that you are allowing us as the church to walk with you through this. I think that it's important that we let the words of Jesus gently weigh on us. How is he calling us to not just move on from the mistakes of the past, the pain that we experienced, or the pain that we perpetrated on another person, but what would the gospel require from us in restoring something, restoring what has gone wrong? How is he inviting us to reconcile where the relationship has broken down? This massive commitment that many of us have made to another person, Jesus is calling us to fulfill our vows, to be people of fidelity and integrity. Which brings us to verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So after a few sermons that we have gone through on murder and contempt, on lust and adultery, now on divorce, this block of teachings might feel a little bit like a pressure release, right? Like, it's been heavy. Oaths? I'm pretty good. Like, I, I think I do okay with oaths. Like, how many of you took an oath this week? Anybody? No? Okay, me neither. Um, and so on the surface, this feels like it could be the least pertinent and the easiest of the easiest of all of Jesus' teachings to ignore. But once again, if you dig in just a little bit, you discover that this block of teaching has massive implications for our day-to-day -day lives as well. It follows Jesus' flow of thought. He begins here. He says he's addressing the gut. He's saying he's addressing our, about guarding our gut with anger. And then he goes on to guarding our eyes with lust. And then he calls us to guard our commitments in divorce, and now he is calling us to guard our tongue lest we make a rash vow. And so remember that Jesus is speaking in a place and time where people didn't have written contracts for, uh, for 
all of the, the things of life, you know, their lease agreements, their marriages, their, their car that they bought, any of that sort of stuff. And said everything was a verbal commitment in Jesus' day. You know, you have, you, you even see that in, in the Old Testament, you wouldn't even have a marriage contract. You, the only contract you would have is actually a divorce contract, a divorce certificate. And so, for most things in your life, your word was literally the words that you said, and it mattered. Your ability to do business and to participate in the rest of the com- community was fully dependent on your personal integrity. And so Jesus, he again points us back to the Old Testament scriptures. He says, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows Fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. And there isn't a specific text in the Old Testament that Jesus is working from. The rest of these commands so far are pointing directly back to uh, the Ten Commandments. But here, Jesus is just pointing back to a general teaching that happens throughout the whole Old Testament. In uh, Leviticus 19, we see uh, Moses wrote, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of, of your God. I am the Lord. Or in Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. And there's teachings all throughout the rest of the Old Testament that reaffirms the same idea over and over again. You see it again in Ecclesiastes 5. You see it in Psalm 119. You see it in Psalm 22. Over and over again, this idea that I will pay my vows to the Lord in the midst of the congregation. The warning throughout the Old Testament is consistent. It is a shameful sin to make a vow and then break it. It is better to be silent before God than it is to make a hasty commitment and then flake out. And so it was a shared value in the community that you would never break your vow or or swear falsely. And if you did, you would suddenly lose all of your credibility within the community. In taking a vow or linking your word to an oath, you were binding yourself to your words. And so the, the law, the Old Testament says, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But Jesus takes it even further. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to unpack all of the swearing by heaven or earth or Jerusalem or by your own body stuff this morning. Um, but, but essentially what Jesus is doing is he is turning the religious system upside down and calling his people to embody a whole other level of integrity in their speech. In a sense, what Jesus is doing is he's, he is doing away with the difference in speech between our everyday words and our vows. He is getting rid of any and all lip service, saying, mean what you say and say what you mean. And Because when we, when we swear an oath, what we are doing is we are trying to force someone's trust where skepticism may have been merited or warranted. Do not swear an oath. Instead, treat every word you say with the integrity of a vow. He's leading us out of, out of a place of dishonesty or partial truths or keeping our options open, and he's leading us into a place of radical integrity where our words and even our idle commitments matter. 
He says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Anything that goes beyond the, the truth, it comes from the evil one. When we embellish or we selectively omit, Jesus calls this lying. He calls it deception. And when we try to stretch our credibility with an oath, you know, I swear to God, no, trust me, for real this time. What we are doing is we are manipulating people. Dallas Willard says that when we swear an oath, we are making use of people, trying to bypass their understanding and judgment to trigger their will and possess them for our purposes. And Jesus says that this comes from the evil one. Now, once again, we are touching something that I think comes, hits really close to home, um, especially for me. Uh, it's, I haven't got off the hook with a single sermon this series so far. Has anybody else felt that way? And so we live in a time where truth is easily twisted to serve the purpose of another person. We are swimming in all kinds of confusion and misinformation. We are swimming in political dishonesty, in media dishonesty, in deep fakes, in internet propaganda, and discerning the truth has never been harder than it is today. And I'm convinced that as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we need to be people of the truth. We should be those who are most discerning when it comes to stopping misinformation and lies. We should be the last people posting conspiracy theories on the internet, right? Right? Thank you. Thank you. Gosh. And yet, light deception is common practice in our world today. Embellishing a story to paint yourself in a better light, omitting a pesky detail that makes the thing a little bit less impressive, putting a half dozen filters on every picture that's posted online. We live in a time where the curation of our lives is an art form. And so when we live in constant light deception or manipulation, it's in fact evil and it's destructive to ourselves and to others. And the Bible says that rather than being conformed to the pattern of the world, what's normal for everyone around us, we are actually called to be transformed to look more like Jesus. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, we read that Jesus will return riding on a white horse, and his name will be called Faithful and True. I mean, consider that. At the end of the age... After everything that's happened from Genesis all the way to Revelation, all the descriptions of who this Messiah was meant to be, when he comes to bring everything together and to make all things new, he's going to go by a name. And what did he choose to go by in Revelation chapter 19? Faithful and true. His name is follow through. His name is, I'll keep my word. His name is you can trust me. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is calling his followers to become. He is calling us to become this kind of people whose word is trustworthy in the big things and the small things. Those who will follow through no matter what. He is calling us to be known for this. 
how many commitments do we make or we can't cancel at the last minute because something better came up? And how often is that conflict, that something better that came up, eh, let's just stay home. <laughs> right? We can be honest here sometimes, okay? I mean, like, why on an Evite do they offer the button maybe? Who does that help? Like, that is a nightmare for the host, and all it really says is, meh, I read it. Just got to keep my options open. We are a generation of flakiness, and Jesus leads us out of our flakiness and into a life of integrity and follow through. And listen, I am preaching to myself right now. I am the king of half-hearted commitments. Or maybe better said, I am amazing at committing to way too much because I suffer from this chronic condition called FOMO, which is the fear of missing out. (laughs) I want to do everything all the time, all at once, every day. And I want to commit to that. I want to say, ah, yeah, I'll be there. You can trust me. I'll totally be there. Um, And uh, the problem is that I end up letting people down like left and right, because I overextend myself, I overcommit, I overpromise, and I underdeliver. We have this rule in our office. It's an unwritten rule, but it's essentially this. Uh, Don't write anything Marshall says down until he said it three times. (laughs) Because I've got so many cool ideas of things that we should do and we want to do. And then people will start actually doing it, and then I'll say, oh, we're doing that? Oh, I I've already moved on to the next thing. I forgot that that's something I said out of my mouth. Here's a good one. Hey, we should hang out sometime. Those are empty words. You never say those to people. It's just lip service. And don't even get me started on the problem, this new like generational problem we have of ghosting where you just disappear. Jesus is faithful. He honors his commitments, big and small, and he calls us to do the same. And Jesus is true. He's not a liar. He doesn't embellish. He doesn't stretch the truth. He means what he says. Are we people who are living in the truth? Or do we live in light, casual deception? Do we live our lives sort of curating the image that we present to other people? A stream of small lies has power to form us. Little deceptions ranging from why we were late or why we didn't get something done or, or why, why we didn't follow through with something. All of these little lies can begin to form us. They become a bondage for us. But Jesus says that living in truth, it actually leads us to freedom. He says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Telling the truth, it forms us out of bondage and into a life of freedom. We become trustworthy, and it leads us into being closer with other people. It leads us into intimate relationships with, with others. Faithfulness and honesty is what paves the way for us to have meaningful depth in our relationship with God and with other people. It's what enables us to live in the I and thou space. We tell the truth. We follow through. We show up. Maybe we even show up on time. And so does your yes mean yes? Does your no mean no? Being a person of integrity and fidelity, it will cost you something. Being faithful in your marriage will cost you your other, uh, will, will cost you. 
It will mean that you say no to all of the other options. It means that you do not get the option of giving up when it's hard. Honoring your commitments, big and small, your marriage vows or signing up for a life group is the way of Jesus, and it will cost you. Telling the truth, even when it hurts, it costs us. Owning our mistakes will be painful at times, but it is in confessing our failures and owning our mistakes that we find forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. And as we grow in our honesty and faithfulness, we will look more and more like him in a generation that, that feeds on superficiality, flakiness, and false commitments. Amen? Okay, let's stand.